Welcome to Out of Material with me, Alexander Desi. In this series, I will be exploring the working minds of material scientists, specialists, designers, and thinkers, contemplating consumerism, design, sustainability, and climate change by looking to the future of material innovation and emerging technology. Andrew Dent is the Executive Vice President of Research at Material Connection, a material science resource which bridges the gap between the manufacturers of innovative new materials and some of the world's leading brands. He is also the Chief Material Scientist at Sando and has previously worked with NASA, Rolls-Royce, the British Ministry of Defence and the US Navy. He has co-authored books on material innovation in packaging, product design and architecture and has delivered multiple TED Talks. Andrew Dent, thank you for being the first ever guest on Out of Material. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start off by discussing the relationship between materials and the senses. Material Connection has established material libraries in eight locations globally where customers can visit to physically interact with samples. Your work encourages a sensory interaction with materials. Could you talk to us a little bit about that and particularly how that experience can continue to be conveyed in a post-pandemic, increasingly digital world? Mm -hmm. Great first question we should probably step back a little bit and, and understand a little bit about materials. The materials uh, world that I live in came from more sort of hardcore material science, you know, the, the, the metals, polymers, uh, ceramics type area. But for the last 20 years, I've spent my time working with a range of different clients who are from the sort of world's leading brands or consumer brands. So for them, Material, of course, needs to have performance. It needs to do what it's supposed to do. It needs to withstand, you know, dings and drops, and it needs to withstand sort of in the environment. So there is a performance aspect to any material selection that they make. But as well, there is, of course, the aesthetic and, as you said, sensory aspect to a material. You know, we have preconceptions, and this is one of the biggest challenges that a lot of designers have in, in using new materials. We have preconceptions about what a material conveys. So if you think about, you know, uh, there's been a conversation for a number of years before we started hating plastics, you know, with the idea, can a plastic age beautifully? Copper, brass, uh, to a certain extent, some steels, certainly leathers, you know, they age and wear out beautifully. You know, we, we, we love the idea of a, of a well-worn leather. It's, it's um, imperfections enhance the, the value of the material. Try that with a plastic, you know, with a plastic, as soon as it starts looking dinged and broken and, 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 and scratched, you think, ah, it no longer has any sort of inherent value. So that's the challenge a lot of designers have is in the perceptions that we as consumers have about materials. There's a standard uh, and much maligned desire to try and move away from glass in liquor bottles and champagne bottles and wine bottles, okay? Plastic in that, that instance is more lightweight. Yes, of course, it's a plastic. But if we can recycle it effectively, it's, it's more lightweight. If you drop it, it doesn't break. It uses less material. The overall carbon footprint of that plastic is significantly lower than glass. But would you, at the New Year's Eve, pop a champagne out of a plastic bottle? I don't think so. You also probably wouldn't want to drink high-end uh, whiskey out of a bottle that's, that's not glass because we have this pre preconceived idea that glass means luxury. They have the same problem with cosmetics. How you react to a certain material when it's in a product or when it's in a space or just, just your experience with material has a lot to do with the other things that that material constitutes. So because leather has been used for 
thousand years for, for products because a lot of the you know most household uh, luxury brands are using leather and are very good at using leather we have this preconceived idea that leather is the higher quality same thing with other materials so when, when it comes to sensory it is there are certain areas where it's very tough to change the material because we as consumers expect a certain type of material because that's what we've always seen and, and therefore it conveys longevity heritage quality all those different things so when trying to change the way in which you way in which a product is made you know, using a different material you have to somehow upend it um, turn it on its head make sure that the consumer or whoever is perceiving this material understands that you are intentionally disrupting the, the any preconceived notions so that's sort of what you have to consider when, when designing or thinking about material selection. And then, of course, with sensory, there's this whole area of design called CMF. Now, I don't know whether your, your listeners will know about this area, but CMF, it's known as color materials and finishes. So any product, any car, any phone, any TV, also furniture, the CMF designer is always considering sensory perception. How does it feel? When you, when you talk against it, how does it, um, what, what's that sound like? Does the, the surface of that material convey what you want it to do? So there is a whole branch of design that's just focused on that sensory perception of materials and how to in, entice consumers, how to perhaps uh, disrupt their thinking by the changing of materials, but always considering the color, what it looks, what it looks like in terms of its, its pigment, what the material is, because that will matter, whether it's a plastic finish or a metal finish, will, will sound different, will feel different, will, will feel cold to the touch or warm. And then what the finish is, is it textured, is it glossy, is it matte, is it all those different things. So yeah, there's a whole design discipline around that for industries such as consumer electronics, home appliances, furniture, automotive, and accessories. Yeah, I've really, I've liked seeing recently on the Material Connection Instagram, this move towards sort of theming all your images around, around certain colors. And and emotions as well almost i've seen you know you've been grouping things by color you've been grouping things by mood uh, how does that visual representation of material properties work they're obviously interconnected but the place we live in is we live in between engineering you know, material science and engineering and design and in, in the middle is this need to achieve a translation between what the designer is looking for and what the des designer is often looking for in things in terms of emotional response is how they feel about it. And of course, with how they feel about it is, is influenced by years of looking at various different other designs, looking at different products, knowing what materials, how materials have been used. So they have that, that belief of that, that aesthetic or emotional response to a material. And then you've got the engineer who cares about numbers. So how do you translate the numbers into an emotional response and that's the challenge and that's kind of the area that we live and we're able to sort of do that there isn't yet an ability to take a tensile strength and then convey that in any sort of emotional way um, it's very hard to make that that transition we've we've seen you know surface textures it is possible actually there are I think 17 different ways in which you can assess a surface texture both micro and macro and that's it's actually possible to you know break down say the the feeling of a brushed stainless into metric is it is it rough to the touch uh, does it feel cold or warm does it maintain that cold when you hold your finger against it for a little while when you put your finger across it does it perform stiction does it sort of like stick and then flow stick and then flow or does it very very slippery is it very grippy those sorts of things so it's possible to translate 
emotional responses are how your finger perceived and how your, your, your eyes and your mind perceives the material into numbers, but it's, it's not an exact science and it's not an easy thing to do. So we spend a lot of time in the middle, in the middle there, just kind of helping designers understand what a certain level of rough, roughness will mean, what a certain level of transparency will mean, and then also helping the, the engineers with how to translate what their numbers are into things that a designer can, can understand and, and, and therefore uh, want to use. So you were talking about preconceptions of materials earlier. Mm. And I've certainly noticed a trend towards this deliberate subversion of, of the expected material properties. So, for example, seeing an architectural structure that's made of steam bent hardwood is immediately enticing because it's in direct contradiction to the way most of us expect wood to behave. I've also seen instances of things like rubbery concrete and bendable glass. <laughs> What's the relationship between these conceptually challenging uh, I've been calling them shock aesthetic materials and real world practical options that can be used in industry. Yes, I think, you know, the egoist that is the architect will always love to subvert and, and disrupt and, and confuse while also making sure that it's, it's also once the, the subversion has been created and received, then there at least is a viability and usability to that because you can you can create the most wonderfully unexpected and eccentric spaces but as an architect you need to make sure that that space then after you sort of like wow this is amazing this is so interesting but you can still use it afterwards and that becomes the challenge ensure you know the the great designer is able to do to do that to create unexpected joy to manipulate what your expectations are going to be and yet still deliver you after that sort of surprise and delight feature a space or an experience that can be enjoyed you know for a long time after that that's often the the, the challenge they have is how do you how do you maintain those those two things you mentioned bendable glass and these uh, and, and the, the wood as well. For me, you know, I, I work uh, I work as a, as a material scientist now, material specialist. Uh, I, my company's Material Connection. It's all about materials. But to be honest with you, can you name five completely new materials that have happened in the last decade? <laughs> there are very few of them because it is really really hard to make a completely new material. To be honest with you, unless you know, un until we get into sort of biological materials where you can perhaps have biology working with existing synthetics, until we get to that point, the existing range of materials is relatively limited. So what people are needing to do is to manipulate, to process, to, 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 to change the material. So you mentioned glass. Glass, yeah, we have preconceived notions about what glass should be. The glass itself is still kind of the same, you know, whether it's borosilicate, whether it's a float glass, whether it's a, a glass ceramic. Those chemistry haven't changed that much. What we're doing is by making it thinner, by processing it differently, making it thinner, we can then get it to bend. And then therefore we, we change our perceptions about what glass can do. So it's, it's less in the new material area that we're seeing these innovations, but more in, in the processing. How do we take our existing materials? And you have people like Skylar Tibbetts um, up at MIT who does this wonderfully. He is, his approach is to materials. He doesn't choose new materials. He takes existing commodity materials and then processes, processes them in different ways so that you have a completely different appreciation of, of what they can do. And that, I think, is, is what they're doing with the wood as well. Wood, wood we've, we've been using for thousands of years, but we're still finding new ways of processing it. And, some, you know, and the ability now to mold it, shape it, to work with it with higher temperatures, with steam, with, with digital fabrication, those types of things, with finite element analysis, where we can work out where its stress points are and then engineer in much more high-performing wood, understanding some of its limitations. From a materials person, it's, it's, it's hard to say, but it's less about materials and more now about processing. How do we take our existing materials and do something new with them? And that, that I think, is what the, where you can get those, you can upend those, those, 
preconceptions about the material. You were talking about how new materials don't tend to tend to surface too often. I know you're the executive vice president of research, so I, I can imagine you're quite involved in determining the methods of research used by Material Connection. How have those methods changed as automation, machine learning, and artificial intelligence started to play a role in materials design? I mean, let's be honest, how much has actually changed? Take a look at a car, take a look at a building, take a look at the chair that you're sitting on. In terms of overall material innovation and what it does for the larger format structures that we are using, look at a plane. Hasn't changed much, has it? I mean, for the last 50 years, what has changed in the plane? We've managed to, you know, with, with drones, we've managed to create smaller, lighter helicopters, but the ideas are still, still the same. You're not necessarily, you know, you're using more plastics and more composites, but with all this new you know, digital manufacturing, we're not changing significantly what we're seeing out there in the world. The car, we've gone from internal combustion engine, which is 120 years old, or perhaps even more, to, to a battery powered. We've had battery powered since the 70s, probably even before. So we're not doing anything new. So what might, to think that somehow we're significantly altering the world around us, I think is a little bit disingenuous. If you look at actually a lot of the stuff, that we, we, a lot of stuff we're producing, it's just slightly faster, slightly lighter, maybe cheaper, hopefully more sustainable versions of what we already got. Find me something that's not a small phone-like device and a digital screen that is completely new. You know, I mean, we're still trying to do the jetpack. <laughs> we're just about getting there, you know, that's okay. But that's more mechanics than it is material. So, you know, my, when I look at you know, innovation, we've seen some great innovations. A lot, of it, a lot of it has been to take existing things that we already know and use and make them smaller, lighter, maybe a little more versatile, cheaper, hopefully. I think what we need to do where we need to be looking for is perhaps the biological world and how we can perhaps get the combination of biological and synthetic materials and also how we can take our existing knowledge and stop screwing up the planet by just making more of the same. There's a, an interesting contradiction almost there then between this idea of innovation, innovation, innovation and in reality change is actually being pretty incremental you know it's just building on the foundations we've already got without without any major changes coming but a lot of what you see in in material science in particular it has a real focus on new innovation and new invention mm -hmm. yeah i mean of course yes we, we i do believe that the only way we are going to get ourselves out of this headlong traje trajectory towards oblivion is going to be through innovation we as consumers we as humans we are lazy we're selfish don't like doing things we don't want to do, trying to get us as humans, even the most well-meaning humans, to change significantly. You know, you work for a number of years and you, do, and you create a certain life value or a certain level of, of, of living, and you're enjoying that. If someone comes along to you and says, okay, well, now you have to get rid of your car, so you can't travel very far. You know, you can't, can't fly anymore. You need to basically stop having all that pre-packaged food, so you've got to cook everything yourself from scratch using these things. You're going to say, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Innovation is going to be the only way in which we can get ourselves out of this because we cannot change human nature enough, quickly enough to change. So innovation will be the savior of us. But I think that innovation needs to be, and the as and material scientists and engineers, as, as, as inventors, the idea should be, how do I make existing life less energy intensive? How do I reduce impact? How do I simplify and streamline? How do I... How are you sure that there's more fresh water around? How are you know, these sorts of things? Yeah, so you were just talking about innovation being pointing towards reducing water consumption, energy consumption, all those kinds of things. You know, I actually wanted to ask you about how you go about 
determining sustainability ratings on the materials that you display on in your library? Sure. Well, you know, I, I, te I teach my students, I make the statement, which is there is no such thing as a sustainable material. Okay. Material, a material is not sustainable in and of itself. It is only sustainable when it is used as part of a system. So I, I use, always use the example of the Boeing Dreamliner. So the Boeing Dreamliner uses predominantly carbon fiber. So the nose cone and the tail cone of the drone Boeing Dreamliner are made out of carbon fiber. So it's made in, in you know, carbon fiber is not a particularly sustainable material. It takes a lot of energy to produce, uses relatively nasty chemicals. Once you've made it into a composite, there's no current easy way to recycle it. Titanium is much better. But the re weight re reduction you get by using that nasty, unsustainable material, carbon fiber, the weight reduction you get through, and therefore the fuel savings, makes it way better to use than titanium. There's no such thing as a sustainable material. However, materials do have specific attributes, which if used wisely, can reduce the environmental impact of the product or the, the system that you're using. Rather than saying, is something sustainable or not? We say, okay, well, does it contain recycled content? Where did that recycled co content come from? Did it come from the ocean? Did it come from a gun consumer's uh, waste? Does it come from post-industrial? How much water does it, does it use? What's the overall embodied energy, embodied carbon footprint of that, of that material? Does it use waste material? Is it durable? Because a simple solution for sustainability is stop using things so quickly. You know, if you, if you keep a pair of shoes for 20 years, it doesn't matter how unsustainable that, that material is, it's way better than the 10 pairs of shoes that you could have bought if it didn't last as long. So is it durable? Is it lightweight? Because lightweighting, of course, you know, transport, overall use, etc., reduces the amount of energy. We tend to break any material down in, into its constituent attributes, water, carbon footprint, weight, durability, recycled content, waste content, those types of things. And we can assess each material on those. So it could, but then it could still be the most, it could be mushroom material, you know, this fungi material that's grown in the dark in seven days and requires no water, wonderfully potentially sustainable material. But if you use it in the wrong way, then you've lost any sustainability you've got through the actual, the, the growing and, and production of that materials. Materials in and of themselves are not sustainable, but you can at least assess them by, on their constituent attributes. Just make sure you use them in the right place where they are suitable to be used. That mushroom material is actually something I wanted to ask you about. I was, I was reading the article that Material Connection shared and, and something really positive that I, that I read in there was that you mentioned that the product is tanned and dyed by the same tanneries that work with animal leathers. I think, I think there's quite a lot of apprehension around the death of traditional trades as the world adapts to the climate crisis, but that signals to me that there's, there is scope for adaptation and it's more about changing the raw materials so that the processing and infrastructure doesn't necessarily have to. The main question around leather alternatives tends to be to do with durability. As you said, lots of synthetics have issues with microplastics and animal hide is linked to massive water consumption and carbon emissions. People tend to think that leather goods are the only option for durability. How do we go about convincing people that a handbag made of mushrooms is just as good? Well, okay. So I would ask, I mean, how long are you going to keep your handbag? You know, you, you need to assess how roughly are, going to, are you going to use it? I would suggest that, first of all, you need to decide how long is that product supposed to last? If it's supposed to be, you know, if it's a Hermes bag or my leather boots, it's supposed to last a lifetime. So therefore, yes, making sure that it's very, very durable is, is a good idea. Many applications, though, think about a wall, a leather wall panel. It's more sort of visual, not particularly tactile, and doesn't, doesn't get an awful lot of wear and tear. There, I can use a significantly lower, lesser durability uh, material. So there's, there's, you know, it depends on what the application is. The loss of traditional industries, and that's one of our challenges we have in the US, is, you know, the, the coal industry. It's kept viable 
large parts of places like uh, you know, in the Appalachian Mountains and, and, and in West Virginia, places like that, where the, where coal industry was the only thing that was there. Yes, and it is a tragedy, but in order to save an, a certain number of people's jobs, wouldn't it be better to put, put money into that environment and try and find something else that they can produce of much better value and more, you know, and, and less toxic Im impact? And it's always happening. You know, the people who produce lead for paint, they're no longer in business because the stuff kills. Do you still want them in business? No. So, you know, there's, we have to accept that the world evolves, that, you know, it may be in a gen couple of generations time, then there will be an entirely different business thriving in places like West Virginia, because you have an awful lot, you have a huge amount of, of labor there. You've got a relatively low cost of living. Why wouldn't you want to create a new, a new business there? Perhaps I mean, doing something which is a little bit more sustainable production of, of, of wind turbines, you know, whatever it is. So the world, it continually evolves. We can't really lose an awful lot of sleep over lost industries because if they're industries that should not, we really cannot have, have them moving forward. I think it's an area that you just have to, have to accept it. People get jobs, people lose jobs. It's a, uh, yes, unfortunately, there's not much you can do about that. You can help people out in the short term, but ultimately people have got to adapt to survive. When it comes to leather, yeah. And what you'll find with sustainability is there's a, everything's a trade-off. There's no perfect solution. Whenever you make go down one route, you're going to realize that you're going to cause problems with everything else that you do. It's just, it's one of those things. You can't do it perfectly. So just decide what it is you want to do. What's important to you? Is it water? Is it carbon footprint? Is it toxicity? Is it, is it plastics in the ocean? And solve that problem and accept that you're unfortunately not going to be you know, you may end up having with a carbon, higher carbon footprint, but you've got reduced number of plastic in the ocean. You didn't do perfect, but at least you did what you wanted to do, which is to solve that plastic problem. And that's going to be the same for different types of, types of leathers as well. If you've got a really durable act, um, application, sometimes leather's better to use. It's, and it's not like we're going to stop eating meat over, over beef overnight. There's still a lot, a lot, a lot of leather out there. But if we can reduce that by 30% using these new leathers in certain applications where they do do okay, where durability isn't so important, where they, they, they do suitably, I think then, then you've got, a, you know, you've got a, a path to, to, to solve it. Don't do it. Don't suddenly remove all leather. Use it where it's good, good uh, and then slowly phase it out because eventually we're going to find some of these mushroom leathers and fruit leathers and that sort of thing. We can eventually engineer them so they're going to be tough enough. So I think we are going to get there. It's just that they only just come out on the market. So they're just very much in their infancy. They're going to improve. I, I read something interesting that said it's, it's sometimes often cheaper for fashion companies or maybe all companies i don't know to, to be processing recycled plastics uh over virgin material so companies can essentially stick a sustainable logo on products when actually the the driver for them using that recycled material is essentially their bottom line um there's quite a nice david attenborough quote that says anyone who thinks you can have infinite growth on a planet with finite resources is either a madman or an economist uh, could, could you just talk a little bit about whether you think that economic incentives are the only viable way to fix this problem is there a way to foster financial growth without increasing resource use okay so it depends whether you are in the u.s or in europe because in the in europe there's a belief that you know the government has a certain amount of power and can wield that power in order to make people do the right thing in the U.S., you try and do that, and you'll have a—it's called you know—you'll have a, a civil war, war in your hands. Um, so you know, it's, it's different countries have a different acceptance level of governmental, federal uh, influence. Having said that, the market will always go for maximum profitability. It will try and produce as much as it can and make as much money as it can. If we look back to um, you know some of the original ideas that Michael Brown got and uh, Bill McDonough had with Cradle to Cradle was. 
that's okay as long as the stuff that you're producing fits within a technical or a biological cycle. In our current manufacturing process, the only way to become truly sustainable is to not do anything at all because everything that we do, the pair of jeans I'm wearing right now, the t-shirt I'm wearing, the phone that I'm, that I'm looking at, all of those require energy and resources and the energy and resources cannot be put back. So those are finite. If you manage to manufacture this pair of jeans from cotton that was regrown sustainably, where the water and you know, irrigation, the water runoff was then cleaned properly, energy was all renewable, that the genes then got recycled back into more genes or got composted to therefore grow more of the cotton, then have at it, make as many pairs of genes as you want because the more genes you make, the better the, system, the better it is for the planet because you get, you, you get more, more abundant, abundant process. So to, using traditional manufacturing processes, success means, uh, means a terrible thing for sustainability, a terrible thing for the planet. The more successful you are, like let's say H&M, no matter how much of their conscious collections they sell, because it's using traditional manufacturing methods, ultimately it is bad for the planet. So the only thing they should do to solve that is to not manufacture at all, or manufacture in ways that ensure that you have this complete technical or biological cycle. That's the only way you can do it. Any, any other way, it's gonna, you know, as, as Attenborough said, it's basically you're, you're a madman because it's always gonna end up with a worsening planet, hotter temperatures, more you know, rising seas, more people dying you know, it's it's yeah so the only way you can change that it's not a material thing it's not a profitability thing it's not a not a volume thing it's all a manufacturing and an end of life thing it's that cyclical approach making sure that everything is going back into the system and it's also if anything comes out of the ground that it's renewable it's not a finite perhaps the, the the most important lesson here is is literally just to produce less if a plastic bottle can be recycled infinitely but I assume a pair of jeans or a jacket can only be recycled maybe once or twice. Yes, it, it can. But but then, of course, if it's if it's a pair of jeans and it's indigo dyed and cotton only, I can put it. I can compost it. I can find some way to reuse it. I mean, yes, it'll need to industrially compost it because it won't go into my backyard. But it, it's a it's an organic material. I can reuse that carbon. So there are ways in which even things which don't recycle multiple times, you know, um, paper, cotton, uh, those sorts of things you can still find ways to reuse them. There are, because they, they still contain carbon. There's no reason why you can't reuse that carbon in some way. Do you think that plastic deserves the rep that it gets? Yes and no. Plastic is an amazing, amazing material. Without it, there'd be a whole lot more people dead. You know, it's, it's worked wonders in medicine. It's worked wonders in everything. It's reduced the amount of energy we use. If we didn't have plastics, we just had oil and the traditional materials, our, our carbon footprint would be much worse. The problem with plastics is that we don't value them sufficiently. The plastic bottle is an engineering marvel. It uses such a small amount of material. It can hold water for 100 years, completely um, hermetically. So, I mean, yes, of course, you get a tiny bit of oxygen, etc., going going through the plastic. But ultimately, it's an engineering marvel. And yet we treat it with zero value. That's our problem. Plastics are amazing. Plastics can do incredible things. We need to treat plastics themselves with much higher value. If that plastic bottle was, it contained water that was worth 50 cents, but the bottle itself was worth $3, you'd be damn sure that whoever has it is going to recycle that or, or give it back to whoever they got it from. The problem is plastic has become so cheap and therefore of little value. And if it's of little value, people throw it away and don't care about it. No one throws away gold. Gold is always recycled. Copper is always recycled because it has inherent value. Our problem is that plastic, we've lost our inherent value of plastic. We don't treat it with enough respect. 
If we respected it, we wouldn't be using it for single-use um, packaging. I read a, a quite frightening stat that, you know, we're worried about the plastic bottles in the ocean, the amount of plastic bottles we're, we're using. The little plastic tags that come on every single item of clothing that you purchase, that you normally pull off, their little snag that, that has the label on it, there's more volume of plastic of that thing than there is of all the uh, plastic bottles in the world. Wow. There are more of those wow. little tiny tags because there's so much there's so much more clothing and they use so much more of them. There's more yeah. volume of that than there is of water bottles. You can't, no one recycles them because they have no, no inherent value because they're so small by themselves. And these are the sorts of challenges we have. There's no value in plastic and that's the problem because it became it was so inexpensive that we lost our, our value in it. And that's gonna be the challenge. Uh, if it's so easy for me to go to Starbucks latte and that plastic itself, why would I care about it? It costs me cents. So that's the challenge we have. Marvelous material. We just need to respect it more and also recycle it. And of course, yes, the microplastic problem, we're solving it. We're working with a bunch of different brands who are working out how to have plastics that can be recycled in the regular way. But if they end up in an environment such as a landfill, compost out there in the, in, in the, in the environment or in the water, they will break down relatively quickly into things that can then be eaten by microbes. So, you know, as the bottle breaks down in the sea, it breaks down into smaller plastics, yes, but those smaller plastics eventually then end up as food for microbes. So we're getting there. We've only just been you know, started trying to do it. So a lot of club companies are trying to catch up. We will get there. So hopefully then every plastic that goes out there into the world, if it ends up in a landfill that ends up, or it ends up in, a, um, in the ocean, ends up in a, in a forest or a river, it will eventually break down to something safe and relatively quickly. We're talking about a year or two as opposed to the 100 years or 300 years for current plastic. Do you think that value will ever come back? I suppose eventually there'll be a point at which resources have been used so extensively that, that scarcity just forces plastic to become a, a, a valuable asset again. I want to believe that, but about 15 years ago, I did. A, I used to do a presentation about, there was a wonderful Dutch guy who realized that, you know, probably about 20 years ago, he put a, put a, a paper together for the Dutch government because he was concerned that they were running out of various different metals for use in warheads. You know, and it was a concern that we're running out of metals. And the reason why we're running out of metal is basically because we've mined all the stuff off of the top part of the, of the surface of the earth. And at that point, we're also reaching what you probably, this is before your time, but there was a, a concept called peak oil. The point at which, the irreversible point at which we can never get back to the same volume of oil production that we had previously. So peak oil is the point at which, okay, from now on in, oil is going to be, the volume production we can have per day, per year, whatever, is going to become less and less and less because we run out of places to get oil from. Then, of course, our innovation, which is both great for us and also is killing us, found other ways to get oil deeper in the ground, in the tar sands, from, from shale. So now we're awash with oil. And, now also, and that, because we're awash with oil, whereas previously, when you first mined copper out of the earth, an ore would perhaps contain 10% copper. Now you're mining copper and the ore will have 1% copper. So the amount of additional energy required and therefore oil used in order to get that amount of, of copper out of the earth, we can still find copper. We can still find these rare earth elements, but we've got to dig deeper and the percentage of material in the ore is significantly less. So every time we do that, we waste more and more energy in getting that material. So even though we, we, we're not running out of resources, we are using a whole bunch more energy and carbon footprint in order to get them. And that's the challenge. So as we pl with plastics though, we're just drowning in oil. We've got so much of it right now. That's a bad thing because it's cheap and therefore has no value.
feel like this all puts you in, in quite a difficult position as as someone whose company is based around connecting brands with resources that they can use in manufacturing and use in production while also espousing all this great great stuff about how we're plagued by consumption and how the best way to be sustainable is to not produce anything at all how do you sort of navigate that when when you're trying your best to be sustainable but you are still putting brands in touch with manufacturers who are producing materials using up resources <laughs> yeah i know okay so what we do we try and push those brands the brands are going to continue to make their stuff what we try and do is to help them make that stuff in a more considered way and to use if possible more sustainable materials we know it's not going to be a sea change we know that a lot of brands can't if you've got a product that's been produced for the last 50 years and it's an iconic product it's very hard to change that the material use we expect that with an awful lot of products so we're going to continue to produce products many of them are going to use materials that aren't great but we are slowly getting them to use more sustainable materials we are slowly getting them to make sure that they if they're using plastics that they can those plastics can either be more effectively recycled or they can biodegrade we're trying to have them give them the impetus to have clearer information to us as consumers about what to do with that product at the end of its life so it's baby steps so that's our job is to you know they've been making a material a product in one way how do we help that client maintain value maintain covetability maintain market share in that product but then use a different material that reduces impact makes it more easy to recycle so sort of thing. it's baby steps and we, we try and do that because we understand that no company is going to thank us if we tell them to use a material that then the product no longer sells because then the company goes out of business so we there is a you know there is a trade-off there we understand that so we, we, just, we just try and educate and show them what else is possible because they may not be aware that it's now possible to, to manufacture something out of this entirely new material get the same brand, same value, but have it much more, less, less impactful. Just wanted to wrap this up by asking you what your favorite material in the entire collection is. Yeah. People ask me that all the time. I used to have this like really stupid answer, which is like, I love air. Air to me is a great material. I think it's underrated. It's, it's used in so many different ways to, as part of processing that I think air is just such a fabulous thing. Anyway, that's not a really useful thing. Though. Um, I would say, um, you know, and the obvious ones, the mushroom material, sure, I think, some of the um, new bioplastics, PHA, which is a bioplastic that comes from agricultural waste that's fermented to create sugar. So PHA is a wonderful new plastic that's got a lot of potential. And that to me is a wonderful, it's one of the few plastics that naturally and quickly degrades in the ocean. So PHA, backyard compostable, comes from agricultural waste, is quickly degradable in the ocean. That to me is one, you know, it's great. That's got all, hits all the right points. It's hard to make a lot of stuff out of it yet, but they'll get there. So that one to me is, isn't the most promising, but you know what? The, I kind of love steel. Steel is not a new material, but everything that is made currently out there in the world, at some point, steel was needed in order to make it. Whether you're printing, whether you're injection molding, whether you are, whether you're casting, whether you are extruding, all these different things, steel is the material that is the workhorse of processing. And you can recycle it. You know, you've got steel probably in my, my car that might well have been in a 56 Chevy because you can recycle steel again and again and again. So it has that, uh, you know, yes, it takes a lot of energy to make it, but the recyclability is high. It's a, there's a wonderful high value infrastructure, global infrastructure for, for metal recycling. You know, there's scrapyards for a reason. There's, you know, there's money in it. So to me, steel is, it's a workhorse. It's in, if it isn't in every product, it was used to make every product. 
it is unassuming and it just like it ages beautifully as well even though it does rust a little bit so i would say steel not very interesting but i think it's just that versatility and longevity for me that, that has that high value great answer thank you very much andrew really appreciate that it's been a fascinating conversation you're welcome always happy to